But let's get to the scriptures today. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We started a short New Year series last Sunday called My Three Best Friends. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. When Amber, our daughter, was in junior high, our family watched a preaching DVD from a youth conference, and Amber was riveted. She was mesmerized by this preaching. And when it was over, she looked at me and she goes, Dad, I really like that kind of preaching. I'm a preacher. So I said to her, what what do you mean by that kind of preaching? And she looked at me with the most compassionate, almost pitiful expression. And she said, sorry, dad, I really like preaching that I can understand. (laughs) So I learned a lot from that comment from her. And I think I've healed from that comment from her. And in this short New Year series, I'm I'm simply trying to remind us and help us understand the kind of church that we are supposed to be. See, the two churches that came together in our recent church merge, Grace Church and Baseline, have a collective history of serving this community for more than 160 years. That is amazing. That's a, a heritage. That is a legacy. And yet our new church, Hope City Church, is only four months old. So since we're just getting started together, I wanted to remind us of the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a church that God can trust. You know, if a parent from New York City sends their child to college at the University of Laverne or one of the Claremont Colleges or APU, we want to be one of the churches that they could trust. Uh, In fact, if that student is sitting next to you right now, we want them to feel seen and special and valued, and we want them to leave their time with us inflated with destiny and infatuated with Jesus. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lists three friends that need to be our friends if we want to be that kind of Church, you know, the friends that we choose in life are absolutely essential. When King David, before he was king, was hiding out in the cave of Adullam, he had three friends that risked their lives to smash through a Philistine army and gather some water from the well of Bethlehem, David's hometown. And then they risked their life again to break back through the Philistine army to bring him a sip of water, all because they overheard David in the cave say, oh, if only I could have a sip of water from the well of Bethlehem. He was homesick, and his three best friends noticed it and did something about it. We need friends to help us get to the well, and we need to be the kind of friends that help people get to the well. Uh, in, in Evander Holyfield's first fight with Mike Tyson, and I love telling this story, uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the infamous ear-biting fight, but the very first fight when Evander scored a technical knockout against Mike Tyson in the 11th round, there was an, a fascinating interaction in the corner. In between one of those deep rounds, Evander's trainer, Don Turner, uh, just stood there for a minute. He, he let Evander rest, 
just kind of stood there, almost like nothing was going on, super casual. And then he leaned forward, and he didn't give him a, a frantic bit of instruction. He didn't say, watch out, he's still dangerous. He didn't give him 15 things to think about. He said these words. He said, go to the well, baby. Go to the well. And Evander did. He dug deep, he came out swinging, and he knocked out one of the fiercest fighters in all of boxing history. And we need people like that, that help us get to the well. You know, there will be times in your life and in my life where we have to stand alone. No one can do your standing for you. And we have to have enough strength and grit and power inside us to keep standing. However, no one can stand for a lifetime unless they have friends alongside them that prop them up and hold them up and hold them steady so that they can stand. So we need to be able to go to the well, and we want to take a lot of people to the well with us. Um, I, I think it was Emerson that said, a friend may well be the masterpiece of nature. The, the Spanish novelist Cervantes said, show me your company you keep. Show me the company you keep, and I will show you who and what you are. Our selection of friends is very important. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lists some potential friends for us. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God, our Father, your work produced by faith. That's friend number one. Your labor prompted by love. That's friend number two. And your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope are the three best friends that we want to absorb into the very atmosphere of our church. In fact, our mission statement here at Hope City Church is to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. And if those three things, faith, love, and hope, if those actually became the cornerstones of this church, if, if those things actually became the fuel for our collective ethos or culture, this church would become a temple. It would become a sacred place where people who are experiencing isolation, fragmentation, loneliness, depression, anxiety, all the things that mark our times, those people would experience and touch something different, something transcendent, and something alive. And so uh, what we're doing in this simple little New Year series is we're just tearing apart our mission statement. So today, I want to tear apart the first line of that statement, to live by faith. And I want to talk a little bit about faith, but I want to do it from a different perspective. I want to think about faith through an apophatic lens. Apophatic is not a word that we use very often, so I'll explain it to you. It, it sounds a little esoteric, but um, the, the, the word, the word uh, apophatic um, in theology refers to knowledge of God that's derived by negation. So the idea of being apophatic is you define something not by what it is, but by what it's not. And in apophatic theology, the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Greek Orthodox Church in particular, leans heavily on the idea of apophatic theology, knowledge of God derived by negation. 
Um, I'll explain this. If you don't know a lot about the, the Greek Orthodox Church or Eastern Orthodoxy, I'll give you the super quick Starbucks napkin-sized backstory because this is a major portion of the church. And even though we are not Greek Orthodox, this is a gigantic chunk of the church in the world. So, so super quickly, from the time of Simon Peter and the apostles, right after the time of Jesus, um, and then moving through church history, there was about a thousand years of church history where there was only one church. Now, tons of congregations, tons of ministries and, and expressions, but only one kind of central church. And, and then around 1050, we had this breaking and this fracturing that we have come to call the Great Schism. It was the breaking between the Latin-speaking Western church and the Greek-speaking Eastern church. The, the Latin-speaking Western church had become the Roman Catholic church. The Greek-speaking Eastern church had become the Eastern Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox church. So that happened around 1,050. Uh, and by the way, it, it happened because of doctrinal disagreements about the nature of the Trinity. And, and then it happened because of disputes over the authority of the Pope. And it also happened simply because of geography. Um, in 1,000, there was no internet. There was no social media. One, one of the burdens of living now is that you carry the weight of the whole world. A thousand years ago, you didn't know what was happening at this exact moment in Japan, uh, but, but now we're so connected that we, we feel the effect of everything. Well, back then, they had no idea what was happening, and so, so they were just naturally diverging, and then when the Pope would try and exert influence over a group that was totally different, it just created tension, so they had the great schism. Well, the, the Roman Catholic Church continued for a few hundred more years until Martin Luther sparked what we call the Protestant Reformation. And then Protestantism, and we're a Protestant church, broke off from Catholicism. And then after that break, there were tons of denominations that split off. But the whole time, the Eastern Orthodox Church continued. An Eastern Orthodox Church would look a lot more Catholic than what we look like here. But their belief system would actually be a lot more like our belief system here than a Catholic church would be. And a fascinating feature of Greek orthodoxy is that the theologians often used an apophatic approach to God. All of that to say this. They believed that God was too other, too transcendent for a finite mind to actually define. So we could identify God's effects his energies, some of his attributes, but we couldn't really know the essence of God. So, so we're not going to say what he is because that's a little bit presumptuous for a human. Instead, we're going to say what he's not and people will get the idea. And this is not a strange thing to do. We do it all the time. Um, I, I can describe my wife to you by telling you what she is. She is super loving Jessica is probably genius in her emotional intelligence. She is super fun to be with. She is loyal. But, but I can also describe Jessica to you by telling you what she's not. She is not fussy and religious. She is not uh, terribly impressed with excessive vanity or obsession with physical appearance. She is not a gossip. 
She is not anyone that you would ever need to worry about in terms of loyalty in a friendship. So, so I can describe her by the negative. And we, we do this with all kinds of things. We, 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 we say, that place is not cheap. That might not be something that you would let your 10-year-old watch. And, and so I, I'd like to take this approach to faith because faith is, is a big topic um, in the church. F faith can sometimes be an overwhelming topic. You know, faith, faith is a big deal in Christianity. The, the scriptures tell us without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? The scriptures tell us that we're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. The scripture says that the righteous live by faith. And, and, and so th there, there were times when Jesus healed people because of their faith. Sometimes Jesus did a miracle and then he attributed it to the person's faith. So people sometimes have a lot of questions about faith. What exactly is faith? And how do I know if I have enough faith? What do I do if I don't have enough faith? And what do I do if I'm struggling with my faith? What do I do if everybody around me seems so certain, but I'm actually pretty filled with doubts and questions and confusion? What do I do with this? And so I'd like to take the apophatic approach to faith. And I'll start today by telling you a couple of things that faith is not. So number one, faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Let me clear this up immediately because I think this could help a lot of us. Um, in uh, Mark chapter 9, Jesus was healing a child that had been afflicted for a long time. And Jesus said to the dad in verse 23, everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything is possible for the one who has faith. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. So I have belief and I also have unbelief. I have faith, but I also have doubt. And when you and I struggle believing the Christian message, when we, when we struggle believing the scriptures, or we struggle believing the things that we think God has said to us, that can do a number on us. And we can start to, to, to really question our, our, our legitimacy. And, 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 um, we, we, it, but it doesn't mean that we don't have faith. In fact, Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham wrestled with some significant doubt in his life, especially early on in his ministry. When he first felt called by God to preach, uh, he, he had some significant doubts. He, he had questions specifically about Genesis and the Genesis creation story and how do we reconcile that with the findings of modern day science. He had questions about some of the fantastic stories that he just couldn't get his head around. But he had so much confidence in Jesus. He had a deep faith in the person and the work and the message of Jesus. And, and he felt this tension so he went for a walk one night, and he took his Bible, and he found a stump in the woods, and he found this tree stump, and he kind of did what I did last night by the cross. He took his Bible, and he opened his Bible, and he laid it on that tree stump, and he just kind of, uh, kind of just groaned in his heart, and he prayed, and he said, God, I don't understand everything in this book. But with all of my being, I trust the author of this book. I, I can't explain everything that happens in here in just the right way, but I trust the one who promised 
that he will complete the good work that he started in me. I can't make sense of all of this. I don't know exactly what all of it means, but, but, I, but, but I trust you. And so he, he said, by faith, I trust and I believe that you will make sense of my questions and you'll answer what I need to know. And he closed his Bible and he stood up and he became the greatest evangelist in his generation. And he was modeling faith living alongside doubt. See, I know people who have enough faith to buy an airplane ticket and fly across the country to see a friend. They have faith in the airplane. They had enough faith to buy the ticket, to go through screening, to sit in their chair, to ignore the flight attendant's instructions. They, they had enough faith, but they also have enough doubt to be terrified during the whole flight. Is it going to go down? See, it's, it's, it's very possible to have faith living right alongside doubt. Their faith is real, but their doubts are real. So that's number one. Faith is not the absence of doubt. So be released today. You are still a good Christian even if your faith is at an all-time low today. Because this is a tangent, but really, God's faith is not in you. His faith is in himself. And he's convinced that he can hold you up, and he can work in you. And if you stop believing suddenly or you struggle in your belief, it doesn't mean God has an identity crisis. It doesn't mean he panics. he's, He's still convinced of his ability to meet you. That's number one. Number two, faith is not merely positive thinking. Faith is not merely positive thinking. Now, if you have faith, you will be positive. If you have faith, you will be more up in your speech. I love positive thinking. Um, I've read several books by Norman Vincent Peale. His famous book, The Power of Positive Thinking, was amazing. He was the long-term pastor of Marble Collegiate Church in New York. Positive thinking is powerful. Visualization is powerful, but that's not necessarily faith. A lot of times, positivity and optimism are more personality traits than faith. Some people are more naturally optimistic. Some people just have an inner wiring that's more steady. Uh, Other people have an inner wiring, and they're a little more Eeyore-ish in their personality. (laughs) Some people are are a little more chicken-little-ish, meaning two people look at the same sky, and one sees it falling, the other sees it upheld. And listen, that's not a bad thing. If that's your personality bent, you want to you not let that become a weakness, but that's your personality. You can still have faith because faith is not just positive thinking. Faith is more than that. Um, number three, and I'll get to what it is, but I'm, I'm defining it by what it's not. It, it, it's not the absence of doubt. It's not just positive thinking. It's not just generating good thoughts. It's more than that. But number three, faith is not magic. Magic, in its technical definition, is the practice of natural things to try to control or influence preternatural or supernatural outcomes. So magic is when I do natural stuff because I want to manipulate something in the supernatural realm. There are places in the Bible where Jesus heals because of a person's faith. But there are other times where he heals and faith has nothing to do with it. Sometimes he heals because of other people's prayers. Sometimes he heals because of the sovereign will of God. Sometimes he heals in spite of a lack of faith. So we have to be careful with this because sometimes churches teach that if you have enough faith, 
If you can muster up enough faith, then you're almost guaranteed a miracle. And in some of these places and in some of these teachings, it's almost a magical thinking. Faith is almost a currency. If I can pile up enough belief, if I can jettison enough doubt, I can cash it in for a miracle. And there's just enough truth in that to make it attractive. But there's a whole pile of dysfunction in that to make it very dangerous. Because what happens when you have enough faith and a miracle isn't happening in your life yet? First of all, it doesn't mean it won't happen. But in this moment, it's not happening. Um, Remember with me that it doesn't take as much faith as people think for God to do something special in your life. Do you remember Matthew 17, 20? Jesus said, I tr- truly I tell you, not just I tell you, but truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? It's kind of cool in our Israel trip. We actually found mustard seeds, like native growing mustard seeds, and we were looking very big. It does not take a lot of faith to God do some, for God to do something special in your life. And so when we think that, that I don't have enough faith, we either slip into magical thinking, I've got to try a little harder, or, or we start to view God as, as almost cruel. God does not have the bar of faith just out of your head, Roger. Come on, jump a little higher. Your vertical's so short. Come on. A little bit more. That, that, that would be cruel. That's not a loving father. That, that, that's not the nature of faith. Um, the, the, prayer, faith, fasting, spiritual practices, what those things are, those are means of connecting with God. Those are means of learning to relate with God, to sense his voice, to follow his leading, but, but they're not magic. You can spend your whole life practicing those things, be filled with faith, and for whatever reason, you're not seeing certain things happen. It doesn't mean that stuff isn't working. It is working, but it's not magic. So faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not positive thinking. Thank you. And faith is not magic. Um, so let me tell you what it is. So let, let's, let's shift, and let me just quickly list a couple things. At its essence, faith is persuasion. I'll read the famous faith passage in Hebrews 11.1. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And the word here for faith is the Greek word pistis, which means persuasion. It means to be persuaded that something is true. And to take it out to its fullest meaning, faith is having a growing persuasion that gets to the point where you believe something is true. It's not the same thing as certainty. Our world today is obsessed with certainty. I know I'm right and I know you're wrong. You know, the very nature of faith is is, there's mystery. I think it's true and I believe it, but I'm also having faith in this thing. It's enough evidence to be persuaded. In fact, it's enough evidence to actually get on the airplane. It's enough evidence, I believe enough, I'm actually going to step out of this boat because I believe Jesus has called me to. So it's not this certainty that can be proven at all levels. It's a persuasion that happens. 
And um, this is so important. The scriptures tell us that God cannot lie. God can't lie. He can't lie because he's truth. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God can't lie because he's truth, and truth can't lie. So faith grows as we become persuaded that what God has said is true. In fact, it's true enough for me to act on it. So how do we get a word? Well, a word comes from three places. It comes from Scripture. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And it comes from the person of Jesus. There are promises in this book that are God's word to you. Now, by the way, there are promises in this book that are not God's word to you. Um, Some of the promises in here are for the nation of Israel. God made promises to individual people that aren't necessarily promises for you and me. So when we read the Bible, we have to realize, is this a universal promise that applies to all of God's people? Because a lot of those are in here. So you can be reading the scriptures and find a passage where it, it communicates God's heart for his people And it comes alive and it grabs you by your hoodie and shakes you and you realize God is giving me a promise. So we get a a promise from scripture. We also get words through the Holy Spirit. There's no verse in the Bible that says Eric and Sarah Nelson are supposed to go to the mission field. But the Holy Spirit can say that to Eric and Sarah Nelson. And then there are scripture passages here that support God doing those kinds of things. But then even beyond that, and this I think is the most important, you have promises wrapped up inside the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, turn to this scripture with me. Go to 2 Corinthians 1.20. This is probably one of the most important verses we could latch on to. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, the Bible says, no matter how many promises God has made, They are yes in Christ, which means everything that Jesus offered the world, oh gosh, please catch this, everything Jesus offered the world, new life, forgiveness, mercy, destiny, the Holy Spirit, power to live in his kingdom, every single one of those is a promise for you. And after he says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, then he goes on to say, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So God speaks it through the person of Jesus. We say, amen, I agree, so be it. And what happens is this faith persuasion starts to grow in us, and we start to become more and more confident that God is speaking. So To to live by faith means to be a people with a word. So we're we're describing who we're called to be. If we're going to live by faith, it means to be a people with a word. It means that we individually and collectively have a word from God. God is not dead. God's not absent. The Holy Spirit is still active. And we've touched something from God that makes a difference. To live by faith means to live by the word of God. It means to orient your life around what you believe he has spoken to you. It means having the courage to stack the direction of your life toward a promise from God. And listen, when people live that way, when a church lives that way, the very atmosphere becomes pregnant with possibility. Um, Last Sunday, Pastor Jack Hayford passed away. Jack Hayford was the longtime pastor of 
Church on the Way in Van Nuys, California. He was the, the president of the Foursquare denomination uh, for several years. He was very influential in my life when, uh, when I was younger. He wrote a book called Prayer is Invading the Impossible. And I, I took a little time this week to just in my mind and heart kind of honor him. I went through notes that I took from him and even asked God, what part of his life am I supposed to step into? In his book, Prayer is Invading the Impossible, he said, when people live in faith, when you have a word, when you're a praying people, he said, life is dangerously present. And man, I want to be part of a church where life is dangerously present. The possibility of God doing something. Now, if God doesn't do anything, we're going to show up and we're going to be faithful and that will be worthwhile but he will. He will touch lives. He will change things. So prayer is persuasion. Faith, uh, faith is persuasion. Faith is tied to a word. And then number three, faith is obedience. If you ever want to know if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith to obey, you have enough faith. If you have enough faith to respond in obedience, that's all the faith that God needs to do something special with your life. Faith is obedience. If you really believe that he's called me out of the boat like he did with Peter, then there's something about a faith response. Whether I sink or not, I believe he's called me out of this. That's enough faith for God to turn the water into cement to hold you up when you step out of it. When God tells you, do not worry about tomorrow, and you believe him enough to rein in your obsessive worrying and your obsessive anxiety, that's enough faith for God to give you a supernatural dose of strength and perspective and peace. When we live by faith, we start to see a story that's bigger than the story we've currently been living in. Um, I, I love how the book of Ezekiel starts in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel sees visions of God. In fact, the opening verse, I think, is just, I, I love it. He says, in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the Kabar River among the exiles, the heavens opened up and I saw visions of God. I love how he marks the exact 30th year, fifth day, fourth month, because you do not forget it when you see visions of God. And he saw a vision of God with four faces, eagle, ox, lion, and a man. Most of your life is spent like an ox, nose to the grindstone, plowing. Faith elevates you to the perspective of an eagle. When you become persuaded of the word of God, it just kind of buoys your soul. It lifts you up. And you know what? When you have a faith perspective, when you have an eagle perspective, you realize, hey, the valley doesn't last as long as I thought it was going to. Hey, there's, there's refreshment right around the corner. I can't see it when my nose is to the grindstone. It's just right around the corner. When you can ascend with a faith perspective, persuaded that what God has promised is true, you realize, hey, Tomorrow can still be good. Tomorrow can still be full of life and light and passion. So let me give you your homework while the worship team rejoins me. Can I give homework in church? <laughs> I'm going to do this this week, so um, worship team can come on back up. I would love for you this week to, to, to spend time with your word. If you have written scripture verses in your journal over the past year, would you revisit those things? In my journaling, I have little links or little symbols that I use to help me know, you know, sometimes I get a cool thought that I just want to pass on to you in preaching. Sometimes I feel like I get a word. 
So I have a special symbol so I can immediately flip through my journal and remember where I think God spoke to me. Uh, Go back to your scripture. What What has God promised from the word? And then go back to the word that he whispered in your heart. And maybe walk through your neighborhood and just rehearse the word of the Lord. If you read through the Psalms, there's an awful lot of rehearsing. The psalmists are constantly reminding themselves of what God did. And listen, if you don't have a word, maybe if you're still with me today, maybe the Bible hasn't opened up to you. Maybe you don't feel like you've heard the Holy Spirit speak to you. Well, first of all, ask the Spirit to speak. But if you don't have that, spend time with Jesus. Um, remember the cross and, and spend time with the person of Jesus. And what, did he, what does his life mean? What promise did he bring to the world? Because that's your promise. And then let's just wrap our heart and soul around it and ask God to, to buoy our soul, give us an eagle perspective, and make us a people that live by faith.